0: Step inside my living room Share a little talk Our roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I want to know where you've been and what you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height
1: Hello, and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 52. And I am here with, I always say my very dear friend, <laughs> even though we just met, David
2: Matlow. You make friends very quickly, obviously. Yeah, yeah, right, we're very close. After yeah, now all we, we are.
1: Now, uh, this is a very interesting show, particularly to all you collectors out there, all you Zionists out there, lovers of Israel, because David is the biggest collector of Theodore Herzl memorabilia in the entire world, right? That's correct. Right.
2: Now, when we say the biggest, we mean the number of things. Right. I have the largest collection. I may not be the biggest physical human that collects Herzl memorabilia, but I have the largest collection. I have over 5,000 items.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the interesting piece here is that
2: you've only been collecting since, what,
1: 1990?
2: Correct. So it's now that's now 30 years, yeah. but, but that... Uh, I've accumulated a lot and with the advent of the computer and eBay and online auctions, it's grown exponentially over the course of the last 10 years or so.
1: Yeah, that is well. It's interesting too, because um, your, your daughters, I think one of your daughters has a Theodore Herzl free bedroom, right? In other words, nothing goes in her room of Theodore Herzl, right? So your whole house is crowded with th.
2: Our house is full of Herzl, so this is our youngest daughter, Yael, declared her room a Herzl-free zone. But other than that, there's there's Herzl in every room. In fact, when Yael went to university five years ago and we were empty nesters, we had to enlarge our house. We were literally drowning in Herzl.
1: Oh, so unlike most people who enlarge their houses because they need more space for the kids, you needed more space for Theodore Herzl. That's correct. So we
2: needed more space for a person who's been dead for 115 years.
1: Isn't that something, eh?
2: Yeah, It's a bit odd, but more of the oddities will come out, I'm sure, over the course of the next hour or so. So one
1: of the things that I was wondering to myself when we first decided to do this interview together is, number one, is why do people collect things? And number two, why Theodore Herzl? So the first piece is why do people collect things? Why would you say, David?
2: I think it's a connection to history, to and it depends. Uh, different people collect different things, obviously, stamps, coins, hats. I've collected all of them, frankly. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola stuff?
1: Coca-Cola memorabilia. By the way, you'll notice the glass I put out for you is a Coca-Cola. I'm
2: honored. Yes, I did that in your honor. Uh, thank you. I, col- I collected Coca-Cola memorabilia, uh, Toronto Maple Leaf memorabilia as well. And it's really a, it's a way to remember and connect with a different time and especially collecting Herzl and Zionism-related memorabilia, it, co- it connects to the, to the mystery and the longing and a period of time before there was a the State of Israel, and it helps me appreciate the work that went into it. And through my collection as well, inevitably I, I find things that existed in Europe before the Holocaust, before the Shoah. And it's really given me an appreciation of the depth of that community that's now lost. Yes. But it emphasizes for me that there wasn't always a state of Israel. We were were born in the same year, 1960. So we grew up our whole lives with the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. That's not true for my parents. And for my grandparents, it was a dream that came true. And some of the mystery and some of the wonder is lost because it exists but through my collection i tap into that longing and that mystery and that desire and the sacrifice that went into creating this miracle can you are you a type of person who can let go of things very difficult in in, my collection is a one-way trip i have doubles and triples of things in part because it's so much i don't know what i have yeah so a normal collector would part with something and and use it to leverage a purchase for something that they don't have but so far i'm not able to part with anything so our home is really a uh, it's a hertzle house but also in different nooks and crannies of the house there are uh, remnants of my old collections
1: so so i'm like that too I, you'll notice that my art is up around my place and I have sold one piece. I guess I'm like Vincent Van Gogh that way. Not in terms of my talent, but in terms of my ability to sell stuff. And the reason is, and, and tell me if this resonates with you at all, is I want to benefit from my art. I want to enjoy my art. I want to see it. So right now you're you're the holder, you're the archivist, you're you're the museum of Theodore Herzl collection that you have. I get will you give that away?
2: Will you what happens to it later on? So that's a that's one of the most often asked questions what's going to happen to your collection later on which a lot of it's a uh, um, a euphemism for when you die i know you you didn't mean it that way but that's how it comes out you should live a long life david exactly yeah um i have over the number of years given away some of the items in my collection to be displayed so in in Two of the JCCs in Toronto. There's something from my collection, a Herzl portrait that's portrayed. There's one in the Herzl School in Chicago, which maybe we'll talk about a little later on. A a portrait there is in the Shalem Center in Jerusalem. If someone is going to show and exhibit, hang up a Herzl piece, I'll happily give it away because this is all for me a mission to communicate what Herzl did and his relevance. Uh, and so i'm i'm quite i'm in the process of giving an item to the museum of the jewish people in tel aviv because huh? they're doing a, a herzl dis- display and someone called me from israel to say would you leave in your will the collection to the the herzl center in jerusalem to for a display of herzl memorabilia and i, I said if you're going to display it while i'm alive you can have it huh. It, uh, I believe I have a national treasure of the Jewish people in my home in Toronto, with the exception of Yael's room. And <laughs> I... Um, and. In a, it doesn't much make sense to have it in my home in Toronto. People come, their tours come, school groups come. I, I talk about it in my home, but if it could be... Oh, they be, come to your house? They, they, I had a class trip from Bialik School, they, which is around the corner a couple of years ago, and they walked to my house in three separate installments. And your wife Leanne is cool with this? She uh, she either is cool with it or she's just given up trying to control it. But yes, she's she is a, she is a very a big supporter of this enterprise do they take their shoes off before they come They in? did take their shoes yeah. off it was winter time so okay, uh bialik uh bialik came i've had a visit from some uh delegates from the knesset oh. came to see the collection uh, various uh uh the the, the um from the, from UJA who are on a year of service in Toronto, they've come. Diller, the Diller have come.
1: We should say Shinshinim are, are young people prior to them going. They going into the army,
2: right? Young emissaries, young emissaries, and they because. come
1: here and they're lovely
2: people, aren't they? Is they're there fantastic. Always? And yeah. and so people come. I've had a board meeting of the Canadian Zionist Federation in our house, so they could see her. It's like I have the consul general has come to visit the collection. It's my pleasure. It's it's there to, for people to learn from and learn about Herzl and, and that's that's part of what I'm pleased to do and from time to time if someone asks for a piece that they will show to help communicate this message it's my pleasure to to give it out
1: so the two points or the two questions that I asked before why does one collect and why do you collect Theodore Herzl so you said it's your it's your uh, connection to history That's correct. That I totally get. I understand that. I think that's probably why I learn history, why most people do. Uh, That would be our connection. Um, You know, I'm doing Dafyomi right now, which means I'm studying a Talmud Talmud every single day. And, of course, it's not a historical document, but it certainly talks about those days, 2,000 years ago. And when I'm learning, um, I feel as though I'm there in spirit. So that leads to the next question
2: is, how close are you with Theodore? That is a very interesting question. Sometime, I have 20 or 25 letters signed by Herzl. Yeah. And when I hold one of those letters in my hand, this is obviously a piece of paper that he held in his hand, signed it, either dictated it or wrote it and signed it. I feel a connection to Herzl, the person he did amazing things for the jewish people and he was a normal person like you and i and when i hold a piece of paper i have a collection of envelopes of letters that were sent to him in his various addresses around europe he was in in vienna and in paris and and other places in basel switzerland he didn't live there but he i do have some envelopes for to him addressed there he was a normal person and he didn't live that long ago in the span of history, 150, 115 years, not a long time. And so this gives me insight into him and also resonates with me that he was just a normal person, do, an do, exceptional person and a normal person. Do you feel like you know him or do him in some way or another? I, I know about him. I have read various perspectives on him. So I understand, I feel I understand what he was trying to do and what motivated him. But there are professors, uh, academics who spend their whole life reading, learning, and understanding and re understanding Herzl. And they would say, We will never fully understand him until the end. He left riddles and enigmas. Yeah, Yeah. And that's. And he did that on purpose, so we would continue to explore him, think about him, try and understand him, and I'm proof of that that people are still talking about him after long after he died, and relatively long after his vision was realized. It's an interesting thing because uh,
1: it there's an understanding I think amongst the mainstream that the Dreyfus trial was a thing that really motivated Theodore Herzl to pursue the dream of a, of a country for the Jewish people, of Israel. But Jock's Kornberg, who's a historian here, is he still alive? Do you know Kornberg? I don't know. I think I had him as a teacher at U of T. Um, he said that Theodore Herzl actually thought that Dreyfus was guilty for what he
2: was charged for. Did you know that? I did not know that, but there is a whole line of thought And not even thought, historical fact that suggests that Herzl's connection with his Jewishness and his Zionism, what became Zionism, predates the Dreyfus trial. The Dreyfus trial was in in 1894, 1895, and he wrote a play. Herzl was a playwright uh, before he was a journalist, and he wrote a play called The New Ghetto in 1894, months before the Dreyfus trial even started, and the new ghetto was essentially the glass ceiling that Jews in Europe experienced. They could not get any higher. They will always be treated as as Jews, uh, and there would be prejudice against them. He wrote that before the Dreyfus trial. He quit his fraternity in university because of anti-Semitism. So he he understood anti-Semitism, the Dreyfus trial, which he covered, which was um. A French Jewish officer, an officer, a Jewish officer in the French army was wrongfully accused of treason. It was a show trial in Paris at the time and resulted in the anti Semitism that was percolating and bubbling very slightly below the surface to come above the surface. surface. So much so that outside the courthouse, Herzl overheard cries of death to the jews and that galvanized his thinking into needing to do something because he understood that the jews in europe were living on borrowed time essentially the ground was burning under their feet
1: yeah Yeah. his theory was that it was futile to fight anti-semitism so that it would ultimately just stop
2: he didn't believe that that was possible right that's correct he he when he wrote the, the Jewish state, the German title was the Judenstaat, or in Hebrew, Medinata Yehudim, published in February of 1896. The subtitle is A Modern Solution to the Jewish Question, mm-hmm. the Jewish the Jewish Problem, which was anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. This was his solution to anti-Semitism. Move the Jews from Europe into their own country there would be no Jews in Europe, so there couldn't be anti-Semitism. And in that country, we'd all be Jewish, so there wouldn't be anti-Semitism. How,
1: how close are your thoughts about anti-Semitism today aligned with Herzl's at that
2: time? Is, is it futile to fight it? There, it? We're seeing it in the news now. We're, it's it's January 2020. We all understood what happened in, in Brooklyn and in over the holiday period what we're seeing in europe it uh, obviously pittsburgh and poway america europe and so there is something that we don't understand it's not Based on what Jews do or don't do. Right. It, there is just somebody once said it's in the mother's milk. Is it in the water? Is it in the genes? Is it in the DNA? We'd, we'd like to think it isn't that it's a learned behavior that can be unlearned. It's a taught behavior that can be untaught. But history has suggested to us that that's not the case there. Uh, I believe there's anti-Semitism because there's always been anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism begets anti-Semitism and and, all, and it has nothing to do with who we are and what we do. Having said that, we, we always need to be upright and just and moral. Anti-Semitism is not an excuse for Jews to behave any differently other than to protect themselves.
1: Have you experienced
2: anti-Semitism? I have only on two occasions in my life. Once when I was a kid, there was a group, around Cedarvale Park that uh, wanted to have a bit of a rumble, not like it was West Side Story, with some kids at the United Synagogue Day School. Not a fair fight. And uh, I think we just uh, rode off quickly on our two wheelers and and, uh, got out of the situation. And once at work, I was referred to as that Jew lawyer. Were you? Um. And there was a process to complain about that to the law society. And there, there still is, I'm who, sure. Who referred that? Who called you that? Oh, a, a, like what a, sort of person? A client on the other side. Oh. And so that's the only the, that's the only time I experienced that. Um, we're blessed in Canada that it doesn't come up very often. Um, did they say those, this to your
1: face? Yes. And you were they, sitting there. What, what did correct. you respond when they, when they said that to you?
2: Well, it's not my own client. If it was my own client, of course, I would have said I'm not acting for them. You're you're caught in a difficult situation yeah. because you have yeah. to represent your own client to your own ability, to the best of your ability, and the behavior of the client on the other side to you, as opposed to your own client, should be irrelevant to how you represent the client. But I did, after that incident, refer it to the... Um, to a, uh, an official at the law society, like to, an to talk about it. correct. And there's nothing that could have been done because that person was not a professional. Had that person, that was a client on the other side, and it. Those were the only two occasions, and I I consider myself blessed that I've only experienced those two extremely minor incidents. We in Canada are living in a blessed time, mm-hmm. right? As Jews in Canada, at this time, literally never been better for the Jewish people. Uh, In Canada and to have the existence of the state of Israel as well never never been better So we don't understand other than through through reading and maybe watching the news in passing what it was like In the 20s 30s or in the 1500s for the Jewish people
1: When you see a man being punched in the head by a bunch of kids in Brooklyn Uh, or you see the aftermath of what happened in Pittsburgh and in New Jersey, are your feelings as a Jew or perhaps your comfort level as a Jew different than it was, let's say, two or three years ago? Like on one hand, you say Canada, we're very blessed, and I happen to agree with you. But on the other hand, there is uh, uh, definitely an increase of antisemitism here as well,
2: and most definitely in the United States and for sure in Europe. It would be irresponsible to ignore it and not be worried about it. Of course I'm worried about it. And and sometimes I wonder are we living here in Toronto or those in New York City is not very different? Are we like the Jews of Berlin in nineteen thirty three that didn't see it coming? In Berlin the the a significant percentage of the the uh, lawyers and judges were Jewish. The media, the department stores, everything that, yeah. Yeah. everything that, not very different from here. And so um, we need to be on guard. We cannot be complacent. At the same time, we we shouldn't be unnecessarily panicked. But we need to be vigilant, and and the community needs to be thoughtful and organized, and I know it is. I have a role in the in the Jewish Federation, and I'm, as any other uh, member of the community, following it in terms of being careful about security and being vigilant and see something, say something, and all of that we do need to be vigilant because we're not immune. No one is immune, and uh, that's just a, a reality.
1: So I, I know that you've had heavy involvement in the United Jewish Appeal, and for those of you who don't know what that organization is, it really is... Uh, it's the central body. It's 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 the fundraising arm of the Jewish Federation of Greater Toronto. And it's really the central body. It's the government of our community, as New York would have one, as flo- different cities in Florida and in Europe and so on. Uh, you actually were the chairman or the chairperson of the campaign in 2015. That's correct. Which is pretty, pretty cool. How yeah. much money did you guys raise?
2: $59 million. Yeah,
1: good for you. Yeah. Good for you. That's a lot of bread. You know, I used to work for them. I do. But I was there for seven years. Yeah. But I I actually have a bone of contention with really mainstream Jewish community and not mainstream Jewish community. I've sat with a few consul generals from Israel and said to them, what's the plan? And this was over the last number of years when I was heading via Hafta. What's the plan? What's what's the plan for anti-Semitism? Is there anything down on paper that we know of? Because it will proliferate and it has proliferated. And for all intents and purposes, there really wasn't one. I think now we're kind of scrambling for one. And I, I know some of the details too, because I've been in discussion with one of some of our leaders. But David, if you go on the street and you ask your fellow Jew, okay, uh, are you familiar with any plan or even steps to a plan? More often than not, the answer is gonna be no. And I know that because I've asked people. I myself am actually working on a plan To fight anti-semitism which i will present to the federation and i will actually publish on facebook and let other people know about it not so much because i think my plan is great it's fine but because i really want to kickstart something important so i'm not sure that we're really on top of fighting anti-semitism in the way that that
2: you stated i'm not certain that that's fully correct we can always do more we can always do Better, of course. There was a dinner, the Negev Dinner, a couple of months ago, proceeds of which went to to fund a new organization who will be focusing on anti Semitism. There are a number of grassroots organizations right. developing to fight anti Semitism. There's a whole new security strategy that's being created. We can always do more, we can always do better. And frankly, yes it's important to have organizations and institutions deal with that, but it's also up to each of us individually yes. in our own little world to um, be, frankly, emissaries of the Jewish people.
1: Agreed. Agreed.
2: Uh, there will, haters will always hate. There will always be anti- anti-Semites, but we shouldn't do anything that gives validity to perspectives that, that, that people may have or may choose to have. Because that's just a reality. I think we always, we're always representatives of our families, of our communities, of our religion, of our nationality. When we travel abroad, we're representatives of Canada and we're always representatives of the Jewish people. So we each individually have a responsibility and together we have to do the best we can. And as I said at the outset, Sometimes it has nothing to do with, with who we are. It's it's just there. We're we're either capitalists or socialists. We're either right. we either keep ourselves separate or we're assimilators. We're either rich or we're we're paupers. We're everything to everybody um, because it doesn't matter what we are. There is really no um, logical basis to the degree. Of, and the vehemence of the dislike or hatred to Jewish people that have we've experienced in our history. there there's theology and, and, and all of that that we've had no nothing uh, uh, no, nothing to do about someone else's theology. Yes but all, all we can do is what we can do, which is always to be, try and be good, just, fair, Cause we're looked at as representatives of the Jewish people whether we like it or not
1: do you have a, a handle at all on hate be it levied at the Jewish people or be it directed at the Afro-Canadian or the Afro-American community Like, do you ever sit down and think like We are not a bad people by any stretch. We're actually a very good people. We're very charitable. We're very giving at the core of who we are is we kamoha, which you should love your brother and sister as you love yourself. And that is not limited to loving a Jew. Correct. Right. And I've been thinking about this a lot, David, is what is really at the core of this hatred? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I think it's fear of the other fear of people who are different. Much of it is economic the concern that other people will take what i have or take the opportunities that i that i have you yeah. we've been perceived jewish people have been perceived to, to be that and now we may look at other cultures who come into canada and tr- think the same what we're seeing in in the united states it's much of it is economic and as I'm a follower of of musical theater, our kids are all interested and involved in musical theater. And in South Pacific, one of the songs is "You Have to Be Taught to Hate." Yes, it's you're not it, In notwithstanding what I said about it, it, appears that anti-Semitism is in the mother's milk, or there may be a gene for it. It really isn't. It's it's acculturated. It's it's picked up, and so we need to not teach ourselves or our children or our grandchildren to fear difference, but to embrace difference. And we do that pretty well in Canada, frankly, compared to any probably any other country in the world. Yes. We can always do better, but it's it's fear, it's jealousy, and it's concern about losing our status, our assets, whatever it might be, to a newcomer, to a stranger, to someone different. And we all want to keep what we have, uh but we should be comfortable that we can share and embrace others and still be left with enough to, to, to do or be what we wish to be you're, so, a good,
1: you're a good spokesman for our people you know
2: i try to be and maybe that's the Herzl in me i try and channel my inner Herzl from time to time <laughs> right. and sometimes i think what would Herzl do do you and, actually think that uh, very often and and frankly my my friends, people in my social circle, uh, know about you can't not know about my affinity or more. Mishagas, uh, nuttiness, craziness, craziness for Herzl. Some you said some of your psychiatrist friends call it an obsession. Obsess, correct. It's a it's over the top. Everything I do is over the top. But from time to time, people who have heard me talk, seen my film, seen my collection, tell me that they were faced with a question. Should I do something or not do something? Should I plan a concert? Should I create a symposium? Should I take a new job? Should I go on this trip? Uh, and, and they say, what would Herzl do? Yeah. Herzl would do it. And so uh, that's one of the lessons of Herzl is go out and do things. Don't just talk about doing things. Go out and do them, because that's what Herzl did. What was his classic line? If you will it, it is no dream. Yeah, which which seems like it would come from a musical, doesn't it? There, there was a musical uh, Dory that was at the La Theater years ago. Yeah. I did was uh, I didn't see it, but you're absolutely right. That's a universal thought. Yeah, it, it comes from Herzl, but the idea of being optimistic and not being saddled with the conditions of your birth, or not being. Uh, So discouraged that you don't think you can change the way things are now. That's Herzl. Don't just talk about changing something. Go out and do it. And the idea in Herzl's day in 1896 in Vienna where he lived, the idea of there being a sovereign, independent Jewish state with all the glory and the warts as well, But that idea was the most preposterous, ridiculous, crazy idea anyone ever had. Yes. And it happened. So one of the lessons of Herzl is if that can happen, anything you set your mind to can happen if you don't just talk about it but set out to make it so. You know, this is a really uh, interesting piece that you touched on in
1: terms of your relationship to Herzl and why your Booby, Archie, and Goldie Um, they lived in Israel, right? They had a place in
2: Israel. Your family used to go there? They moved there. My grandparents, so these are my father's parents, Archie and Goldie. The Matlows, yeah. Correct. They both came from Malch in Belarus, found their way to Toronto after the First World War, but dreamed of a Jewish state. Worked towards it. Worked canvas for the UJA. My grandmother sold oranges door to door Did to she? raise money for Palestine. So they tell me.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and when Israel was born, this was the fulfillment of their dream. And in 1954, they sold their their house out on um, Shelbourne, I think, in, near, near Bathurst and St. Clair. Here sold, in Toronto. Here yes. in Toronto. And they bought a home in ramat gun which is a suburb of tel aviv and we would go there in the summertime in the 60s so you you were born in 1960 the same as me i'm just
1: a few months older than you right. and and in their apartment they had a picture of theodore Herzl, right that's correct and you saw that and upon your grandmother's uh, demise upon her death in 1991 was it that's correct you
2: asked for that picture that was my inheritance from my grandmother i asked for that which was your first piece in your collection, That's right? item one. Item in one. In the collection. Yeah, ground zero. There, that's right. <laughs> uh, that, that's item one. It was... My my grandparents had a, a villa there. It was really very unusual for Israel in the 50s and 60s. And so in the main room, there was a picture of Herzl in a very regal frame, in a very prominent spot. And... As you indicated on my grandmother's passing, my grandfather predeceased her in the '60s. Um, I asked for that, and when we opened up the frame, what it was was a giveaway from the Haaretz newspaper. It's a prominent Israeli newspaper from 1960 yeah. on the occasion of Herzl's hundredth birthday. So even now, you can buy them on eBay for ten or twenty dollars. There were hundreds of thousands of them, but my grandparents thought enough about the importance of this to take it to be framed and it hung in their home and it was that that wasn't unusual because there were many homes and that's why I have so many things in my collection there were many homes and, and offices Zionist centers when we grew up that would have a Herzl picture photograph a bust a sculpture which was really how the dream, Herzl's dream, was kept alive after he died. Right. By just like an, in, if you go into a, a, a teenage boy's room, they may have an Austin Matthews picture or a bobblehead somewhere in their house as connection to the Toronto Maple Leafs and the vision, a different vision, a different dream, frankly. Yeah. But the people would have Herzl because it's a, a way to keep the dream alive and a, and a tangible reflection of their de- desire to help make it happen. And he
1: was an auspicious looking fellow, that long beard similar to Abraham Lincoln's, right? That's correct. Yeah, Yeah. and in ni- 1896, I uh, think it was the first Zionist convention, they used to wear top hats.
2: Well, Herzl was a, I mentioned before, he was a playwright and a journalist, so he really summoned all of his talents to the Zionist enterprise. And one well, uh, as a playwright he was a dramatist he understood theater and street theater and the, the zionist congress was street theater when he went to basel the first zionist congress which was the first meeting of jewish people to help talk about their own issues for thousands of years it was in basel switzerland so mm-hmm. this was organized before internet the telephone i guess just started so how do you organize a conference of delegates on a shoestring budget with people, hundreds of people from different places around the world, including from America, yeah. to come to Basel at a certain time in August of 1897, he sent someone ahead of time to book the venue. And when he gets to Basel a couple of days ahead of the Congress, his emissary booked a beer hall, <laughs> like the, like the Monarch Tavern, let's say, for the Zionist Congress. And Herzl said, uh-uh, this work. is not the picture that we want to show the world. So he booked what's, um, I was there uh, 10 years ago. For your 50th birthday, It still birthday, exists right? for my 50th birthday in yeah. Basel. It's the it's like Massey Hall, the equivalent of a Massey Hall, which is a, an old time concert venue. Which aesthetically makes sense. Correct, it right. was a beautiful building, the most prominent venue in Basel. And he insisted that everyone wear a tuxedo. Mm-hmm. All the delegates wear a tuxedo. Mm-hmm. Like my mother used to say, you want to be taken seriously, dressed seriously, and so everyone wore a tuxedo, and he wanted to show the world in the photographs of the day that these, these were serious people doing serious work. Yeah, you know, I was really struck
1: by uh, your most prized possession in your collection, and tell me if I'm saying this correctly or otherwise. It's called a, a Carnet de Bal? Correct. Carnet de Bal of, of Fanny Wilson. Explain, explain what that
2: is. So a Carnet de ball, and I had to learn, I had to Google this myself yeah. when I acquired it. It's a ladies' dance locket. So picture a locket which has inside of it a little autograph book. It may be one inch by one inch and a half mm-hmm. that would sit on a chain because it has a, a loop that you would put a chain through. And there is a springing device on the side of it where you would put a pencil. And when you take the pencil out, it would spring open and inside the locket was a, an autograph book and women would take these autograph these books to get their dance partners to sign it like a dance card yeah and Fanny Wolfson was the wife of David Wolfson David Wolfson was Herzl's successor when he tragically died and when Herzl tragically died in 1904 so after the, working himself to death right? that's correct yeah so this locket was obviously taken by Fanny Wolfson to all the Zionist dances, meetings, um, get-togethers, and she had it autographed by the prominent Zionists at the time. And the top one is Herzl himself, who signed as Benjamin, his Hebrew name, Benjamin Zev Herzl. So there are very few items that he signed as Benjamin, but this is one of them. And all the other prominent Zionists at the time, Max Nordau, Nelson Israel Zangwill, I describe it as the, the Zionist equivalent to a 1927 autographed Yankees baseball. O- or a
1: program from, again, a musical West Side Story, as you mentioned, right? Correct. That yeah. first
2: edition has all all this Zionist celebrities uh, in this in this locket so that is my prized possession so so the thing that that
1: brought me to this topic was that um there was a a ball going on (laughs) now i know that in our day and age we have galas. our community has many of them to raise money you gave an example before of the jewish national fund uh who raised money for you know an entity to fight anti-semitism a few months ago so it kind of makes sense in our day and age but you're thinking okay here's the genesis of the state of Israel. It's only at the dream part. I understand why Herzl's assistant went out and got uh, almost like a bar or what have you. I get that because he's thinking, okay, we need to be modest. We don't have a lot of cash. We got to do this in any way we possibly can. It's really the meat of the conversation that's important. But Herzl was an interesting fellow because he wanted to show through the aesthetics and through the physical... Uh, that we were upstanding, that we uh, were not necessarily poor. In other words, when the state of Israel was going to come, we were going to budget for it. We were going to pay for what we needed to pay for. Uh,
2: His vision was a very sophisticated one, really. That's absolutely correct. What Herzl did was he began to put in place the infrastructure for a state in creation. Herzl didn't come up with the idea of Zionism. He thought he did because he wasn't well re- well read in Jewish life, but the idea of a return to the to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, was something we've talked, we've prayed for and longed for for thousands of years. Next year in H- Jerusalem. H-
1: was a correct,
2: group. or or um, auto emancipation by Leon Pinsker was twenty years prior, or uh, from Rome to Jerusalem, uh, Moshe Hess uh, twenty years prior to that. The reason why Herzl is known and and memorialized and understood by people, in addition to me, is because he went out and did something yeah, about it. Right. He didn't. He wrote this book, so that's something tangible. But he just didn't leave it in words. He went out and created the the first thing he did, create the Zionist Congress, which was a parliament of the Jewish people, parliament of a country that didn't yet exist. One of his early ideas was to create the Jewish Colonial Trust, a bank which which was chartered under the laws of England, but mm-hmm. he was one of the directors of it. He was a busy guy, but the Jewish Colonial Trust opened branches under the name of the Anglo-Palestine Bank in in Europe in Beirut, believe it or not, and in in Palestine and in, in Israel and in, in in Jaffa, even before Tel Aviv existed, to take deposits and lend money for the settlements of land and the purchase of land. Yes, The Jewish National Fund, he didn't create it, but it was inspired under his leadership to buy land and to create an organization which was greater than him, the World Zionist Organization, which was a democratic constituent organization. All of these things... was an infrastructure for a state in creation and that's the difference between Herzl and the other thinkers who may have preceded him he's a lesson of of doing something to make your dreams come true
1: yeah and this doing something is again it's a really big piece with you isn't it it's the idea of not just dreaming of which he was he was a visionary he was a dreamer but he
2: actualized his dreams that's the secret sauce. Is not just to be a dreamer <laughs> right, right. to actually do something. Now, do you see yourself as 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 that sort of person? Well, it's a, it's an interesting question because for I've been talking about Herzl and and the, I did a documentary film maybe in 2012 and and have had some exhibits ten years ago. So I've been on the theme of Herzl and talking about not talking about something but doing something for many years, and then. In early 2014, I got a call from Fran Sunshine, who on behalf of the nominating committee of the, the United Jewish Appeal to ask if I would be the chairman of the campaign. Right, right. And then I thought to myself, do I just talk about not talking about doing something, or do I actually go out and do something, yes. right? Talk is cheap, go out and do something that's harder. And so that's, I channeled Herzl there to say, of course. I can't just talk about not talking about something I have to go out and do something and so that resonates with me quite regularly and this Herzl mission that I am on to talk about Herzl to to use him as an inspiration for young people and to also make the case for Israel, for the legitimacy of the state of Israel comes from its history. Where did it come from? Which is not very well known. Yes. Is in my view trying to do something. To to the other element of Herzl is he used his skills and talents towards something he believed in. As I said, he was a playwright. He was a journalist. He was a lawyer, too. But Initially, smart, right? Smarter than me, he saw, He stopped being a lawyer. <laughs> but he used all that knowledge and all that wisdom and threw it at something he cared about, which was the future of the Jewish people. There can't, could not have been anything more important than that. Yeah, he came
1: from secular parents. His father apparently was a very auspicious business person that's right? correct and as you said he himself was a lawyer initially um, and he gave that up to write
2: to be a journalist he gave it up firstly to be a playwright and the reason he gave up being a lawyer is apropos anti-semitism his ultimate goal professionally was to be a judge and in Austria where he lived at the time yeah. judges could not be Jewish Yeah. So, so he experienced anti-semitism so he pivoted as they say now and did something different. How was he taken seriously, David? Because he, firstly, you referenced earlier his looks. His looks were very regal. He looked like a king. And there was something about his eyes and his demeanor and, and an arist- aristocratic look to him. He was also brilliant and well learned and articulate and we all we see these guys in our lives who are able to inspire people yeah yeah hopefully we see these people who inspire others for good but we've also seen throughout history very charismatic people who understand people's buttons and know how to push them who inspire people for bad but focusing on the good he there are many books and articles written about his personality his look, And his ability to communicate to people inspired people to join his plan, to help make it happen. You know, it's interesting. I think that at the crux of
1: influence is not necessarily how somebody dresses, much to the chagrin of my father and clearly your grandparents, your grandmother, as you mentioned before. Because you you think about a guy like Bob Geldof. Remember Geldof? Right, sure. So Geldof actually did a gala for Via Hofta. So I spent a little bit of time with him. And I think it's safe to say that, uh, like myself, he's uh, uh, disheveled, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yet his influence was and likely still is huge, right? But he is a communicator, and he tells an outstanding story. And the room in which he spoke was quiet so much so you could hear a pin drop, um, almost demagogic. And I, and I think that's probably at the core of success and the ability to bring people together and buy into your dream.
2: Correct. And confidence and having... Yeah,
1: confidence, right.
2: And tapping into something that's deep inside of people's soul or hearts. The I, The idea... At least in Eastern Europe, Western Europe was a little different in, in, in France, Germany, England, Jews were sort of making it and we, we obviously know what was coming. Now we know what was coming. They didn't at the time. But in Eastern Europe, I picture Anatevka, life where you were always subject to the whim of the police commissioner or the czar or whoever. And the idea that there was a different way, there was a better future, there's a path out of this. There's an ability for the Jewish people to be free and to actualize our own creativity and, and, and look look after ourselves, for better or for worse, and not be subject to the whims of other people is such an obvious thing for us now. But it was a novel idea. Chaim Weizmann, who later became the first president of the State of Israel, was a very prominent Zionist, Zionist great leader, responsible for the leadership of of the of uh, the Jewish people between the World Wars, s- reports that when he first read the Jewish State Herzl's book in 1896, it was like a bolt of lightning mm-hmm. came out of the sky. It really illuminated a path to a future out of despair, and that's the Herzl had the personality to inspire people that it was possible you looked at this person, thought he thought, he was he the Messiah? Of course not. Was he the king of the Jews? If so, he was self-appointed. But people looked at him as a leader, different than anyone that anyone had seen for hundreds of years. And because Herzl understood politics, and that whole lay of the land from his days as a journalist, yes. he was able to Arrange meetings with very prominent leaders. The Pope, the Sultan of Turkey, the Prime Minister of England, and those visuals, different than the selfie visuals we would understand now, but certainly photographs and word reporting suggested to the readers that this is a guy who's onto something. He may very well do it. So let's join the plan. You know, it's also a fascinating thing about such visionaries, such
1: dreamers that w- while they're alive and if they can actualize their dream, it can be something which is very magical, very mystical, have a real illumination to it, a real shine to it. But, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't always end that way for them personally. Like you think about Moses. Moses never went into the land of Israel. Right, David? That's correct. So the last partial last portion in the Torah. That's correct. Herzl died in 1904. Clearly, he never saw the establishment of the state of Israel. And also, I think, did he have three children? He did. They did not do so well, right? It's
2: a very tragic, tragic story. Uh, He had a daughter, Paulina, son Hans, and then a daughter, Trude. When When Herzl died in 1904, he was 44 years old. The kids were teenagers, 15, 13, and 11, something like that. Herzl essentially bankrupted the family by pursuit of in pursuing this dream yeah he his wife was a very a daughter of a wealthy Austrian in, or industrialist, and the money was gone and then what was her name by the way uh, Julie do we know about her at all yes she she died shortly thereafter about four years thereafter and you could sort of understand her I married a lawyer I married a playwright. <laughs> what the hell happened? And then for the last 8 years of his life yeah. my husband gallivanted around the world pursuing this what was then a crazy dream which we now know is a realistic dream. Yes. Spent all our money and then died. Um and so she was resentful of of Zionism, but she died a few years later. The children were orphans, under Herzl's will, and it shows you what the rights of women were in, in Austria in the early 1900s. Herzl was able under his will to determine what happens to each of the children. Not It mo- didn't go to the mother, it went to three separate foster, uh, three separate guardians. And they were separated, and at the, to make a, 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 a long sad story, a short sad story, the oldest daughter died in the thirties of a drug overdose. Yes. Her brother committed suicide shortly after, shortly thereafter and wanted to be buried beside her. The daughter Trude was married, but died in Theresienstadt, uh, concentration camp during the, the Holocaust. Got, she had one child, Stefan Norman, who was sent out of Austria and uh, lived in England and then America and when he learned after the war that his family perished he committed suicide. Oy. So Herzl has no descendants. We're, we're all the, the beneficiaries of his work Whoa. and his children and his wife sacrificed do, for do, it.
1: Do you, this is a stretch but do you see yourself as a bit of a descendant? Maybe that's not the right word, but in other words, you're the one who's keeping his memory alive, not only of the visionary and the dreamer, the Theodore Herzl
2: that we see on the stamp on a horse, but of the human being. I don't see him as, I don't see myself as a descendant, but I see myself as having an opportunity to keep his name and his vision alive. The vision exists, of course, the state of Israel exists, but Herzl talked about the point of zionism is not just to have a plot of land but what kind of society we're going to make on that line when you on that land if you allow the jewish people to uh, have their own control and enable creativity to come out let's create a model society and that work is ongoing and will ever be ongoing and Inspiring people to not give up on Israel, not get too frustrated when they read, read the news, not lose the wonder that it is a miracle. If you go there, you're walking in a miracle. We're so illogical that we don't believe in miracles, but the existence of the state of Israel is a miracle. And part of my mission and the reason I talk about and exhibit and show my collection is to show that it wasn't always thus and most more importantly if we take it for granted yeah. it may not always be this way it's our responsibility much of the hard work has been done but the hard work is not finished yeah, I, I love in that light, I love
1: how you've embraced Israel, I mean s- similar to myself we come again, we were born in 1960 so we, we both know Gilligan's Island, right? <laughs> <laughs> a 3 hour tour exactly well done <laughs> we could sing it if you like um so we both we both were brought up in a time where The the story of Israel, the existence of Israel, was something which was really foremost in our home and and in our homes. And and you know, you write about your trips to Israel. You you went to Mount Herzl. You said on one side is Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, of course, is the uh, it's an entity within Israel that remembers uh, the Holocaust, right? Right. And then and then on the other side of it is the military cemetery of Jerusalem, right? Right. And you wrote that left is death, right is survival, left is destruction, uh, right is revival, left is pain, right is pride, it,
2: which is fascinating, right? Yeah, there is. I've been to Mount Herzl many, many times. It's, it's a pilgrimage in a sense, whenever we go to Israel. But there was this one particular day where I was just for a walk by myself. And there is a seam uh, between Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial uh, Center, mm-hmm. and Mount Herzl, where Herzl and other science dignitaries are buried. And and on that seam, it, it hit me that th- what what a difference it makes. If you went left, you would go to Yad Vashem. On the right... Is the dream and the fulfillment of the state of Israel fascinating? And it reminded me of uh, Robert Frost. That came upon a for a fork in the road, right? And and um, and and it made all the difference. The state of Israel makes all the difference. We don't even realize how different our life is because we can't imagine. We we've never had a world without it, but. I know that our life is dramatically different and improved because it is there and we can't lose sight of it. And all we need to do is look around, read our history books and maybe even look at the newspaper to understand what life would be like if it weren't there.
1: And and then you continue to say, uh, then you just, you continue to discuss Israel's successes and, Some examples you gave have to do with the startups in Israel. Uh, You gave an example of a robot that is being developed to help older people. You gave an example of an algorithm which reduces prescription errors. Another example you gave is the Gigawatt Global, which develops solar um, energy, really, in Africa in the very first field that it launched was in Rwanda, and it increased increased the country's electricity by 6%, and I believe they're working or had worked on one in Kenya. So you're pretty fascinated by the Israel story as well,
2: and I think think the startups is a good way of looking at it. The idea of Herzl was that allow the Jewish people to be free and safe and secure in their own homeland Mm -hmm. and see what happens. What would happen if, if we had all those privileges that other privileges uh, other people have French have France and Italians have Italy and Greeks have Greece, let the Jewish people have their own country. What would happen? Building a moral you know, a moral society, as I said, still a work in progress and will always be a work in progress. But when the creative juices are unleashed, what happens and technology, is one uh, and the the startups and the innovation, medical inventions, the the USB key, the discs in cell phones, all of that inventions that emanated out of Israel because of the idea that we are free to actualize our creativity. Herzl wrote a book. It's called Alt Neuland, Old New Land, yes. in 1902. As an aside, it was translated into Hebrew as Tel Aviv. The city of Tel Aviv is named after Herzl's book. But in Old Neuland, it pictures what Herzl thought the Jewish state would look like 20 years in the future. So written in 1902, what it would look like in 1922. There would be electricity, there would be uh, um, science and technology, there would be culture, there'd be innovation, there would be communal farming, a free press, there would be um, opera. There would be many things that were that are not that different than the Israel that actually emanated from his vision, and it is still in, um, in creation. So I'm fascinated. The one example of, of Gigawatt Global, it's, it is, it is um, creating solar fields in Africa, yeah. literally a light unto the nations, right. so literally creating electricity, in countries that don't have it and what does electricity give you the ability to work at night to read to have to uh, have industry and also not uh, pollute you by burning diesel these innovations and it's not just having the innovation but it's the desire to export them to share them with the world the jewish people in the state of israel get a bad rap right it's uh, it's you know, pink washing or rubble washing or all of that right. uh, not fair Israel's not perfect of course but on balance the contributions of the Jewish people in, in cultural, in science in industry, medicine technology we punch well above our weight and it's a desire to to improve, to do things better to help the world be better and, and that's, that emanates from Herzl's vision.
1: Nicely said. Nicely said. You are listening to Hat Radio. This is episode 52. I'm sitting here at my dining room table with... Now you, I can say my dear... Now f- we're good friends. Yeah, now we're <laughs> now we're very close <laughs> with David Matlow. And we're talking about uh, Theodore Herzl, of which uh, David Matlow is the uh, biggest collector of Theodore Herzl memorabilia in the entire world. I want to say that Hat Radio is sponsored by Gary Samuel, and one of the one of the pieces within his sponsorship is to talk about an aspect of Tikkun Olam, which, again, is a light unto the nations of, of repairing the world. Um, and Gary said that something that is very near and dear to him is that when he is driving up the Allen Expressway, which is a small expressway here in Toronto, and he sees that someone is asking for funds, it's very important to him that he gives that person money if he's able to stop and do so. And I and I, I thought to myself, that's that's a really important thing for two reasons. Not only to support this man or this woman, because you can only imagine how difficult their lives must be. But sometimes when you give the money, the people behind you are watching, right? That in itself is a light unto the nations. Now they don't know that Gary's Jewish and they don't know this is an extension of his values having to do with Sadaka. But the fact of the matter is maybe they themselves will be compelled to give. So I want to thank Gary and his family for their sponsorship. Where where are you
2: on that issue? You're driving up Allen Express. Will you you roll down your window and give some cash? I wouldn't say I do it all of the time, but in my cup holder I have loose change. Oh, you do? And so when I can do it without... Danger, and right. I have to be in. You right. have to be in the mood. You can't help everyone all the time. I wish I was that good a person that I that I can or do, but but I do it sometimes, and it's it's hit and miss or random when I do it. But I like to have change available when the circumstance arises. I could be better. We can all. I'm a working all be process as well. Yes, uh, but philosophically. It, it's not a big sacrifice for us. This is loose change. It would, would sit in a jar in our home, so might as well have it in the car and, and share it, spread it around. You're from
1: Toronto? And I am. you Are
2: your parents with us still? My dad is. My mother passed away about seven years ago. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. How old's your father? He is 93. He is in Israel right now. He likes to winter in Israel. That's his happy place. Where does he live in Israel? In Jerusalem. And well, I have a sister who lives in Jerusalem as well. She moved there in the 80s, and... Um, so they're, they're nearby. Which neighborhood? In the German colony. Oh, it's very nice Jerusalem. there. It's very nice. What's your father like? He he is the child of the Goldie and Archie. He's a lifelong passionate Zionist. In fact, in 1948, he, went, he left the University of Toronto to... Fight in the War of Independence, a member of Machal Mitnadvei Chutzlarets, of volunteers from outside the country. There were about 600 Canadians really? who did that. He was not a World War II veteran. He was too young, but he, he and a couple of his friends, There were, apparently there was uh, re- emissaries from the Haganah, came to Canada to recruit people to fight in the War of Independence. He went to a meeting, and he signed up. Wow! And much to the chagrin of my grandparents, these are the people who moved... Um, in 1954, right, he was the only son. Didn't want to risk losing the son, of uh, their son. The concern was the Jewish community would be annihilated, but that wasn't the case. And he's a passionate uh, supporter of Israel. When he came back, he founded the Vad Lemanachayal, the Association for the Welfare of the Soldiers of Israel, in mm-hmm. Toronto, um, as a way to to keep his um, war buddies. Uh, together and to contribute to the growing state of israel and he is a lifelong learner he goes to, he's 93 years old goes to uh, goes to lectures goes to, he's, he's always inquisitive rea- reader doer of the new york times crossword puzzle i can't do it for one minute he can spend <laughs> hours and hours doing a lover of the state of israel what kind of stuff does he read he, he is a fluent reader of Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the Israeli army, he was in the communications group because he understood Hebrew. He, uh, literature, as well as Bible, just about anything. Um, on, the, on the plane to Israel, he read a, almost a whole John Grisham book. But he'll equally sit down and read Nachama Leibowitz or some other commentary on on the Torah. On the Torah. What what, um, what did he do for a living? Your dad. He was a jobber. He had a store on Spadina Avenue. Yeah. And socks, towels, um, sheets, uh, pajamas, things like that. Do you remember going down there as a kid? for sure he was right across the street from the uh on the old united bakers was right. on spadina avenue yes. had lunch there every day for 20 or 25 years uh so we used to go as a kid sometimes on the way t- when we'd spend a day to go to the exhibition right at the end of the summer yeah uh or ha- do something downtown so absolutely from i remember running around or riding on the the wheelie in, <laughs> right. in his store yeah how's he doing without your mom he is, he's awesome. It he's obviously very. It was very s- sad. They were married for over sixty years, uh, and he made the determination not to allow it to break him. And he actually received a call during the shiva from a rabbi who was a friend of my sister Elaine's who lives in Israel, who essentially said, "Your kids need you." Yes. Right. Your kids and your grandchildren. And now he's got. Then he had no great grandchildren. Now he has seven great grandsons. Unbelievable. Um, and um, so he's he's sad and emotional. The Matlow men have very active tear ducts. Yes. So he wells up in him. And then it, I'm the only son. And me as well, from time to time. But he's made a determination to keep going. And his name and is live Irving. And your mother? What was her name? Esther.
1: Her name was Esther. Esther. Your, your mother? What was she like?
2: So my my mother was also um, a big Zionist. She was was the national president of Canadian Hadassah Huitzo in the nineties, and she was uh, family was everything to her, as well uh, as was Israel and the Jewish people, and to. To uh, her we were the royal family i shouldn't say this now but i we're the same age i think as prince andrew yes um so forget andrew of these days but andrew when we were kids there were pictures of the royal family and andrew w- would wear shorts right. even in the winter time so right. my mother got me a suit to go to synagogue with shorts. So in December or January, I'd go to synagogue in shorts. <laughs> and she would say, if it's good enough for the royal family, it's good, it's enough, good enough for the for Matlos. Her son. It's absolutely right. Which, which synagogue did you go to? We were members of Bethsader. Are you we still? still are. are you still? Yeah. We still am. And, and, and was your mom a good cook? Fantastic. She was a fantastic uh, cook. She this Cooking, running the household, she had the philosophy everybody all the time. Uh, we were f- four kids, but then when we got married, there were eight spouses, and then uh, twelve grandchildren. And there, and so by the you know by twenty ten, there were a family dinner when my sister was in from Israel. There were twenty seven of us or so. Oh, it's beautiful. They in, uh, we enlarged our house to make room for Herzl they enlarged their dining room when we all left so that everyone could sit around the dining room table. That's very and special. that was the her greatest pleasure, my dad too, when everyone would sit around the table. And so there was never, okay, David, you and your family this week and my sister Ruth or Anne, you're next week because we don't have enough room. It was whoever wants to come, everybody all the time. That was her philosophy. So there's a
1: closeness between you and your parents or with your mother. Uh, there was with your mother and there is with your father. Correct. Your sisters. You
2: seem to be a gentle fellow. Well, I take that as a great compliment. Yes, you do. So thank you.
1: Yes, you do. And, and also a very uh, curious man.
2: I am. Uh, while we're always learning, always growing. Yeah. And um, and I go off on tangents. uh and to learn and try and understand. And so, yeah, I, I'm inquisitive. And Herzl is is one of those, is the main thoroughfare of my curiosity. But it takes tangents off, off to the side all the time. Like where? Where would it go? Well, my current interest, well, this is really niche, but on the same theme as Herzl, but from a different perspective. And this will sound very odd, And is the presence of... Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, in world's fairs before Israel's independence. Okay. <laughs> so that's really odd, and you think, well, what is that what does that mean? Yes, what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give exactly. you an example. Yes. Israel was created in nineteen forty eight. Mm-hmm. In nineteen thirty nine there was a World's Fair in New York City, in Flushing Meadows, where the Tanda Center is now. Yeah. City Field is, is is where the World's Fair was. There was a Jewish Palestine pavilion at the 1939 World's Fair, as there was in the 1931 World's Fair in Paris and World's Fairs that preceded it. And what this was, was the Jewish community in America, as well as the Yishuv, the Jewish citizens of of Israel, wanted to not only show off what they were doing, but to pretend to the world as if it's a country that already exists. And so there was, as you'd imagine, in World's Fairs, areas for different countries. There was Jewish Palestine. Palestine wasn't a country yet. There was fla- flags of all the countries of the world. There was the Zionist flag, which is now the state of Israel. Yeah. And it's all about the longing and the efforts to create the Jewish state. So it's 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 Herzl, but from a totally different perspective. That's my current tangent. What happens to a collector is when they get close to the end of collecting, they got to find something new to collect. So I'm pretty close to the end of Herzl. So... It goes off to the side from time to time.
0: I
1: understand that collecting is different now with the internet than it would have been 30, 40 years ago because it's not as difficult. It's not as much of a challenge to find stuff. If I was collect, I used to collect canes and I love the idea of driving up north on a Sunday and stopping at a farm and seeing that they were selling stuff, you know, old iron pieces or old boots. And there I would find in the middle of all the stuff, some people call it crap, I
2: would find a cane,
1: you know, and I would buy it for three bucks. Now I just need to go on eBay.
2: It takes that element of the fun out of it. But the cost benefit, there's also the ability to access things that are available around the world. You wouldn't yeah. be going to a, a cane shop in Australia very readily. But if there's a cane in Australia that's posted on on eBay, you it can come to you but you're also competing with cane hunters from around the world as well. Yes.
1: The cane hunters. <laughs> you know what, you <laughs> know what I, uh, my, my imagination, my mind was really running when I read about your most prized possession and that it came, uh, with 900 other pieces. And I'm thinking to myself, man, David sitting there probably with your family opening these boxes and finding treasures inside there.
2: What well, was that the case? It was fantastic. So I bought a a collection from a a friend of my sister's who uh, lived in Israel. Sadly, he, he since passed away, and I bought the entire collection. And it came a couple boxes a week. There may have been fourteen or sixteen boxes. So it's two boxes a week for eight weeks. Oh, that's exciting too. It was really fun to open them up because some of it was sight unseen there was an index but it's hard to wrap your head around an index of 900 pieces and it wasn't all all indexed. and i remember one time i opened a box and it was on december 9th 2009 so why do i know it's december 9th 2009 because in the box was the program from a zionist ball like we talked about earlier that was held on december 9th 1909. Oh, wow. 100 years to the day. Wow. Before. And and there were Herzl letters, all kinds of items that I had never seen before, and I got emotional opening it Did because you? this this is a connection to our history. Our history is unique in the world and precious. And we are, apropos your question at the beginning why collecting because I put us in touch with our history, we are the result of our history, for better, or for worse, as individuals, as our family histories, and as a people, we are still experiencing today and living out some of the fears and some of the tragedies we've suffered, not only when we sit around on Purim and pass over and retell them, but in our psyche as well. And so our history is always with us and when you open a box and you have a connection to a historical event that happened 100 years ago that is a pretty amazing sensation. Do
1: you cry when you open that stuff sometime?
2: I don't want to get tears on it. It's a bad it's bad for the old documents, the old paper, correct. I have I've been moved to um, to, to not literal tears. But I have been overwhelmed with emotion when I, I touch imagine. when I touch some of these items. I can imagine.
1: Now I want to thank you very much for giving me the Theodore Herzl socks. <laughs> is you're there, welcome. Is there Theodore Herzl underwear, or how, where do the socks come from? Well, the socks,
2: the socks that you're describing have a um, a design of Herzl playing hockey. Now, yeah. Herzl, of course, never played hockey. No, I don't imagine. And uh, the reason for that is the purpose of the socks is really as a device for people to continue to tell the story. Like, um, and when I do um, a presentation or speech, I have a couple coming up in the next couple of months, one in Miami, one in Las Vegas. I've done it in, in New York and Washington and, and Israel. At the end, everyone gets that pair of socks do they (laughs) in israel it's a little odd because i said i don't know if any of you wear socks but um but the idea is you'll put on those socks and someone will look at them and say who's on your socks and you'll say that's theodore Herzl," and inevitably they'll say who's theodore Herzl?" and it gives you an opportunity to tell a bit of what you just heard
1: right but why is a hockey player
2: well in canada if you want to get someone's attention Uh. just say hockey and so, he has. Herzl had no connection with hockey, probably never saw it, never heard of it, never cared about it. But by, ha, by portraying Herzl as a hockey player for Canada, it resonates. So I guess that answers the question, too. I was wondering why you created a bobblehead, a hockey bobblehead of Theodore Herzl. I'm a lawyer at Goodman's, and in the early 90s, I was asked to create an event, which I decided would be a ball hockey tournament. And I had total latitude, so I called it the Herzl Cup. Yeah. And um, then over the years, I, I, you said earlier, I had an obsessive personality, maybe an excessive personality. Right. I took this idea of the Herzl Cup, which was really 10 or 12 lawyers from Goodman's playing ball hockey in the parking lot of Bialik, or the Eitz Chaim School. Which are Jewish schools here in Jewish Toronto. Jewish schools in Toronto. And... I built that up in my own mind into something of significance. So created a series of souvenirs, bobblehead was one, pucks, sticks, pennants, things like that. In fact, one year to celebrate our fifth Herzl Cup, I wrote letters to dignitaries around the world and asked them to send a letter back to include in the program for the Herzl Cup. So John Chrétien... Others wrote back congratulating the Herzl Cup for its importance in the Canadian sports landscape, um, l- leading to the, bo- the bobblehead, which was my all-time great- greatest creation. Every now and again, it shows up on eBay. Someone sells it, if you believe it or not, but I don't buy it. I don't buy back my own material. But that at the time, it was my outlet within my professional life to talk about Herzl. That has since ballooned into what we've been talking about.
1: Uh, Are you um, uh, satisfied with what you've accomplished to
2: date? You seem like you've done quite a bit. I am, but there's always more to do. My greatest satisfaction, frankly, is it's, it's one thing for us to talk amongst ourselves about Herzl and the importance of Herzl and who he is. But how to take that message out into the broader community. And what I'm most proud of is a relationship that has developed with a school in Chicago. It's called the Theater Herzl Public School. It's not a day school. It's a public school. And the students of that public school are African-American kids. Goes to grade 8. There's about 500 in the school. Mm -hmm. The school is in an area called North Lawndale. And 100 years ago, North Lawndale would be like the Lower East Side of New York or Kensington area in Toronto. It was a Jewish community. Golda Meir came from that area. Golda Meir lived there, correct. Uh, before, on, Between Milwaukee to Palestine, she lived in Chicago, and she worked in the library there. Yes, There are, were 100 synagogues in the era. Sears Roebuck's head office was there. It was referred to as Little Jerusalem. In 1915... The Jewish community of Chicago asked the Chicago public school system to name the school, public school, that was being built in the area after Theodore Herzl, on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of his death. It was built, and it was called the Theodore Herzl Public School in 1915. In the intervening hundred years, the Jewish community has left, moved to Skokie or Highland Park or other places. But the school is still called Herzl. And I discovered it because I found an item in my collection. When the documentary film that I did was and was screened in the Chicago Festival of Israeli cinema in 2013. The film was called "My Herzl." Yes. I went to f- myself and my brother-in-law Eli Talel, who was the, the, who made the film, we visited the Herzl School. I think it's and we told them who Herzl was. Like in Toronto, there's a school, Jarvis Collegiate. Who's Jarvis? Mm-hmm. Who's Harvard? They were people. So to them, Herzl was the name of a school not necessarily a person. But we uh, talked to them about who Herzl was. And, and then the festival hosted them to see the film. And I, and I offered to the principal, uh, a very inspiring educator, independent of the Herzl story, uh, named Tamara Davis, that if you want, I'll come back every year to tell the kids who Herzl was. Mm -hmm. So over the six years, that relationship has ballooned significantly, so much so that for the last three years, Temple Beth Israel, which is a Reform congregation in Skokie, has adopted the school to give Christmas presents to all 500 kids every year. It's been captured on Chicago ABC television annually. The... Um, kids from the Herzl school, we organize a bus tour of their neighborhood to see the sites of Jewish interest there. It's it would be obvious to us that what's now a church was once a synagogue. Yeah. Right. It has the Ten Commandments, yeah, it you has could the tell. Star of David. You could tell. Here in Toronto did, as well, yes. Didn't the the students had no reason to know that Jews once lived there. And this relationship is is Growing. The Consul General of the State of Israel came a couple of years ago to the school to tell them that, tell the students that Herzl had this dream and dreams can come true. We were invited once for the day after Martin Luther King Day to, to come to the school because, in the ethos of the school, Herzl is like a Martin Luther King. Yes, that's right. You're not saddled yeah. with the conditions of your birth, things that have been the same for a while can change. If you want them to. And in fact, I, I always wear this blue bracelet, which we we made for the students of the Herzl School, which on one side says, if you will it, it is no dream, which is Herzl's motto. And the other that says, I have a dream, which of course is Martin Luther King oh, Jr. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, I'm wearing one now too. They're very nice. Yes.
2: And so the Herzl has brought the Jewish community of Chicago Together with the African American community of North Lawndale, and it shows that I call it Herzl magic. It's just a lucky coincidence that the school is named after Herzl. But this relationship has ballooned now independently of me. I'm I'm, I'm in Toronto, but there are connections constantly being made with a for a, a, a shared vision. We all share more. We all have more in common than what separates us, and this. Uh, through Herzl bringing these communities together and the school is so appreciative because until we sh- showed up frankly people wouldn't visit We'd be too, would be too scared to visit yeah. and they they love that people outside of the North Lawndale area care about them and the relationship is growing, the next iteration of this will be in May where the school is is undertaking a art and speaking contest on the theme of Theodore Herzl and why he is important and presenting it on, uh, on May the 1st to members of the local community and members of the Jewish community to bring communities together. There are serious racial issues in the United States and, and Chicago in particular. And if Herzl can be a vehicle to have people share what we have in common and not focus on what separates us, then i say that Herzl would be very proud that that's happening in his name yeah you know, dave i'm really happy that uh, i interviewed you you're, you're doing great stuff man well i would say the same for you in preparation thank you for this uh, interview i've listened to the last 20 or so of your um have you? your podcasts and i find them moving and inspiring and i hope that this has at least touched the level of your prior ones well I-
1: I love the fact that, you know, I really, I didn't know you before you came here today. Uh, I knew your wife when I was a kid from right. Kitchener, but you and I, our paths never crossed. And to sit here and listen to what you've you've done, um, you're just a regular guy, part of our community, right? But you've really stepped up. You really have. You've really made a concerted effort to make a difference in so many people's lives through your own passions. And... Very often I talk about what our listeners can take out of these interviews, and I would suggest really strongly that in the case of this interview with you, um, it's really what Herzl said, which was, you dream it, you can
2: do it. Get out there and do it, right? And you have. You really have. I'm not saying what I've done is a great thing, but we all have the capacity to do great things. We do. We all do. Yes. And I, uh, you know, in Yiddish,
1: we say Yosher Koach, like, well done on your life so far. You should live a long life to 120, you and your family. But uh, I love your story. I really do. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, it's terrific. It's terrific. And I, and I, one of the reasons that I do Hat Radio is because I want other people to hear the stories of folks that we walk by on the street, you know, or we might be seeing synagogue on a Saturday Uh, who are who knows walking through one of the buildings downtown where you go for lunch you never really know who somebody is until you sit and talk with them and i find that everybody has a story to tell and more often than not if they can articulate them
2: well as you have they're fascinating we we are fascinating people are i mean don't you agree i certainly agree and what we don't do in this fast-paced world is is think or communicate beyond like 140 characters or yeah. quick we don't even pick up the telephone anymore i find it unusual in my office that i get an email can i call you yes and i think well just call me I'm, I'm okay just call me but but our technology has changed our behavior so we don't know people but if we can stop and learn about them um they can inspire us and we can develop the clo- a closeness in a, in a community which, which frankly is the raison d'etre of this uh, hat radio yes. to enable people to get to know one another and be inspired by the things that people do, uh, including the things that you do. Thank you very
1: much. I appreciate that. I'd like to bring my son over to your house. I want him to see your collection.
2: It's my pleasure. Anyone who, from time to time I get a call, or Leanne um, gets a call from someone working on a project about Herzl, and there's a guaranteed A. For anyone who comes over, because we'll set them up with, 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 uh, 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 your son is welcome anytime. Where do people get in touch with you to learn more about your collection? So my name is David Matlow. If you Google Google my name, a picture of Herzl will come up, or if you Google Herzl, a picture of me will come up. But I'm a lawyer at Goodman's, and I'm easy to find. All right, very good.
1: I want to thank uh, my listeners for listening and being part of this. And once again, take out of it what you think is important. Certainly what I think is important is the idea that if you are dreaming about something, well, take the next step and actualize it and and do it because you have the potential to do so. If you're not quite sure how to go to point B, then ask somebody, you know, because people can help you through this stuff. And life is not long. Life is very short. As Theodore Herzl knew, he passed away at 44 years old. Um, So make sure that you squeeze in as you as much as you can an interesting line David that you said in something that I read was uh, through Herzl I want to make sure that I'm doing as much as I can uh, for the things that I believe in
2: that is what I'm trying to do every day there to to help make a difference to help inspire others and to not just take up space on this earth but make it better for me having passed through it.
1: You have been listening to Hat Radio. It is the show that schmoozes. You like that? The show that schmoozes? I do. Yeah, you do like that? I do. Yeah, thank you very That's much. That's exactly
2: what we've been doing for <laughs> we the last sh- hour,
1: of sh- hour and a half. Yeah, schmoozing away. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and
0: God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Cat Radio, the show that chooses. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the height in the hat Put it on